you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. All right, welcome to a special edition of the Hudlin Flow podcast as we get ready to head into week eight, the unofficial early midway point of the NFL season. I'm Steve White, you with my guy, Jim Trotter. And, and Jim, this is another one of these really cool episodes, right? We talk a lot of football and everything else. We have a spectacular podcast that came out Tuesday with North Carolina Ante. Uh, state head coach Sam Washington and, and Seahawks general manager John Schneider. Um, but here we're going to talk about our craft once again, about journalism, because it's been under attack. Hmm. Uh, it has been praised for being the truth tellers um, of what we do. And Jim, on that note, we're going to be bringing in Lindsay Davis of ABC News. Yeah, Steve, she's someone I'm I'm really interested in hearing from. Just so accomplished, so talented, um, not only a network correspondent, but also an author. She's written three children's books, the third of which is supposed to come out, I believe, in February. Um, and I just think she has an interesting perspective during these times uh, for us to hear from, particularly having sat in the moderator's chair during the Democratic primaries, where she was part of a couple of debates so just a fascinating um, person, talented person, and I think our audience, and particularly those who love journalism, will enjoy hearing her speak. And also she's going to talk a little bit of sports, too, because she has done some interviews with players about them uh, standing up for social justice issues and also voting. Because, Jim, we have seen the NFL talk about 90% of its players are registered to vote. Um, they've had all these voting initiatives. This is going to be coming out just a couple of days before not only our presidential general election, but again, the local ballots, the local measures. Hopefully everybody pays attention and learns about them because a lot of the change starts on the local level. But also a lot of the change in our business starts with people like Lindsey Davis giving us fair and honest and accurate reporting. So on that note, Jim, let's bring in Lindsey Davis of ABC News. 
Hey, this is John Lynch, General Manager of the San Francisco 49ers, and you're listening to the Huddle and Flow Podcast with Jim Trotter and Steve Weish. All right, Jim, now let's bring in our special guest, uh, Lindsay Davis from ABC News, and she has done it all. I think that's what's so cool about this in terms of, Jim, you and I are two old newspaper guys who transitioned into the broadcast world. We've done stand-ups, we've done investigative reporting and things like that, which is why I think it's so great to have Lindsay on because she's done some of the biggest stories covered, you know, the Las Vegas massacre spoke to Bill Cosby. I think we're the only person to score the interview uh, with Bill Cosby um, before he got locked up. She's moderated some presidential primaries. I mean, there's so much on the resume here, so we're going to get to it. So Lindsay, thank you so much for joining the huddle flow podcast with Jim and I. Yeah. Stephen, Jim, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. Yeah. yeah I want to, I want to, I think, yeah, I think we want to get going because, we're just right in the middle of it, right? So we've got the election coming up. We just saw the Supreme Court nomination. Um, you've got like the rally that we just heard about in Omaha, Nebraska, where all of these people are stranded at the airport in the middle of a winter storm. I mean, how is it being in the news business right now when it is just a perfect vortex of news flood, news mayhem, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you know, throughout, so now I've been in the business for over 20 years and I would always describe it to people as, as you know, these cycles, right? And, and it's often feast or famine, but I've never experienced in my, you know, more than two decades now, um, anything like this feast of news <laughs> that just doesn't stop. And in fact, I, I was just talking to somebody about, you know, preparing for election night. And I'm a little hesitant to really dig in yet too deep because the news cycle changes so quickly. I mean, every day is a whirlwind. It's like things can shift 24 hours later. You know, what I've, you know, uh, studied and researched today, it, it may be out the window because it's just such a different um, beast that that we've been dealing with now. Um for, for quite some time, really, you know? And, and so really, I, I'll look forward to some of those famine moments where you can just kind of catch your breath again. Um, but, I, you know, so many people have talked about how 2020 is unprecedented. I mean, just in every way, it's not just because of the pandemic, right? I mean, it's because of uh, the, the policing, it's because of what we're seeing happening and not happening in Washington. It's because of the so-called racial reckoning. And then you add to it the, the pandemic on top of that. I mean, there's just so much going on in the mix. And and by the way, also these hurricanes, you know, we're talking about Hurricane Zeta right now that's hitting the Gulf Coast. I think it was the fifth name storm to hit that area um, this year alone. So it's just so much upheaval and uncertainty right now for, for all Americans. Lindsay, can you speak to I would say just how important it is now, the job that we do, and particularly the job that you do um, when you're talking about presidential elections and whatnot, because obviously we've been under attack by this administration with the whole fake news and everything else. But I think sometimes people don't understand just how important the role of a journalist is in terms of bringing to them information that affects their daily life. Um, so can you speak to, to where we are at at this point in our profession in terms of knowing that what we do is so important, but at the same time, um, having so many people who uh, now seem to not trust right. what we do. 
you know, and freedom of the press it was so important, right, that they made an amendment <laughs> about it, designated entirely um, to that. And, and discrediting legitimate news sources does a disservice to our democracy. Um, I mean, I think that the checks and balances are are necessary and our founding fathers realized that. Um, and I think that one of the problems is that you have um, when you're holding people's feet to the fire, politicians or, or otherwise, um, if they don't like what you're saying, it's like, well, that's fake. Rather than saying, oh, well, you know, I understand their point of view or we have a differing points of view or offering a counterpoint. It's just like, no, you can't trust them. And I think that that really is so dangerous and detrimental, especially when you have people who are willing to just accept that. I mean, we're seeing that play out just with the masks and people are just trying to suggest that like, oh, well, there's all this disinformation. And in the beginning there was this confusion. Yes. It, and that's true. In the beginning, there was confusion about if we should wear masks, but now there's no more confusion. So why are we making it a political issue? And and if people don't want to wear the masks and they feel that it violates their political freedoms, their personal freedoms, then they're deciding then that it's, you know, oh, it's the left or, oh, it's the that, you know, uh, news media that's like, you know, um, in bed with the Democrats. And and that's just not true. So do you think that we or how do we get past this? And do you think we can get past this? Can you put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think that we we can get past it. I mean, you know, um, President Trump has been fr pretty forthright uh, about saying, you know, to Leslie Stahl on 60 Minutes several years back that he does discredit the media intentionally. So if they say something that he doesn't like, then he can say, oh, well, that's not real. That's fake news. Right. I mean, he's been pretty honest and, and upfront about his tactic and methodology. And and so I think that if you don't have the person who's at the top um, saying, you know, that you can't trust these people and having nicknames for certain people, I think that 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 naturally will come back. Now, certainly there are going to be people who still won't believe or, or trust all the media. But I think that it's it's not the majority of Americans who feel that the media can't be trusted. And, you know, um, I don't think that that's just anecdotal. I think that you can turn to, and I'll do a plug for, for ABC News for a moment, just that the idea that World News Tonight with David Muir is the most watched show on television, bar none, in this moment. Um, people still are going to the news to get facts and to find out, is my world safe? Is my family safe? What's at stake here? Tell us about our health. Tell us what we need to do. I've been wanting to ask you, why have political reporters been so reluctant from the beginning to say this is a lie? It seems like we used every euphemism possible when it came to, to President Trump and the things that he would say. We would say he made a misstatement or he didn't know, he may have been ignorant on this or whatever. Instead of actually saying, he told a lie. Why did it take so long for us to get to that point? And some still haven't. I, I don't know what the word is. If it's just a reverence for the, the position of, of the presidency that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily call someone out an outright liar, um, but you would just give the, um, the facts, right? And say, well, 
contrary to what, you know, as, as, as you've been seeing recently um, with uh, the misinformation that President Trump has been giving about um, fraud in the election and with mail-in ballots and how most recently saying that we must know the winner on election night. Um, and, and we've been quick, I know I can speak for us at ABC News to say, um, no, that's not accurate. Um, and so, yes, I, I think that there is a certain decorum. I guess that's maybe the word that I was looking for before, where you know, we're not going to say, you know, somebody's a liar because it's kind of name calling in a way, but just pointing out misstatements, untruths and, and countering it with the facts. What will be your assignment on election night and how are you guys preparing for what you just talked about and saying that, you know, we not be able, we not might not get the final tally for days and you have the president saying, no, it, it's got to stand, you know, by midnight on the third or whatever. You know, and, and historically, if you go back um, in, in our country, it, it was the idea of election night is something that's fairly recent in modern history where you actually knew on the actual election night. And so I think that we have been really uh, getting ahead of this for, for a while now, for months, really, with our viewers talking about how this may be election week or election month, um, and that, that we may not uh, know definitively on that night. And, and so we've been preparing for, you know, the possibilities and for the probabilities of, you know, when we're going to be able to project. And, and the, 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 the point is that we really just don't know. I mean, if this is a landslide in either way, uh, for Trump or Biden, then then it's possible that we would be able to to tell um, our viewers, uh, you know, on the night of of election night. You know, Lindsay, I've got uh, two questions for you as far as coverage. Um, you have a unique vantage point, or you had a unique vantage point in terms of these presidential debates, the two that took place, having moderated during those um, the debates during the primary. When you watched. Chris Wallace, um, or you watched the second debate, what were your thoughts? Because the, the, the focus became as much on the moderator right. as it did on the debate itself. From your vantage point, how did you, you could put yourself in their shoes. Right, right. What were you thinking? What were you feeling as you watched? Well, I think like with anything else, quite often, if you go first, sometimes uh, you don't get the the luxury of really being able to play out scenarios, right? And so with Chris Wallace, I was just, you know, kind of sinking in my seat saying, thank God that wasn't me that night, you know? Um, <laughs> and But I think by the second time around, Kristen Walker really got it right. And I was, I had nerves for her. Uh, going into it that night. And I think she was on top of it. She handled it well. Um, but I do think that she had an advantage in two ways. Um, one, they had decided and agreed on, uh, the commission had said and gotten both, even though um, the Trump campaign wasn't uh, that interested in the idea of, of muting the mics. But, but ultimately, then going along with that, I think that that was a helpful tool um, to be able to have. And also, you know, we all saw a different President Trump uh, on that stage that night, you know, maybe sometimes in his facial expressions, you could tell his frustration and his eagerness to kind of jump in. But he really was a lot more reserved um, than he was that first go round. Um, and so I think that that also worked to her benefit, because for the most part, on both sides, when she told them, you know, time was up, for the most part, they they listened and 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 followed suit. You know, in my house, we've had this discussion at times. 
when we watch the news and we will see the president making statements that we know are not true. And, and the question will be, why is the network even putting it on if it knows that what he is saying is not true? Can you take our listeners behind the scenes? Does that discussion happen within the newsroom um, at some level where it said, we understand he's the president and he has to be covered, but what is our role and our purpose? Um, if we know that what he's saying is not true, why do we have to air it? Well, I do think that a recent example of that, uh, that again, uh, speaking just for ABC News that you saw, um, right as uh, the Trump campaign was really uh, excited and trying to get the, the story broken uh, about Rudy Giuliani having access to Hunter Biden's laptop, that story really broke um, right as George Stephanopoulos was hosting the town hall with Joe Biden. And he really kind of took some flack about not asking Joe Biden about that. Um, but I think that that was a nod to it not, you know, cutting the mustard with our standards here at ABC News and, and ser several red flags really being on that story as far as the, the credibility and if it was true. And so as a result, because there was enough concern about um, how accurate um, it was, that it was just, it was dismissed. So I think that that is uh, an example. I think that you also do have, you know, like the Washington Post and the New York Times who keep track of uh, what they call, you know, lies or misstatements uh, by the president that are in the, the tens of thousands, I believe at this point, you know, from- Beyond 20,000. Is yeah. it beyond 20,000? Beyond 20,000. Um, and so I, I do think that you do have um, some aspects of the media where you, you, you try to, to stick with, okay, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think that in a, a lot of scenarios, we've, we do try to put the guardrails up on the side of the roads and, and it's up to the American public to, to see when a car has really veered off the, the highway or, or, or the cliff. Lindsay, kind of in our world, we have seen an incredible level of activism from athletes, NFL players, NBA players, especially WNBA players. And, you know, in, in covering this, a lot of people, hey, we didn't come to NFL Network to hear about voting or protesting George Floyd or Ahmaud Arbery or, or something like this. From covering it from, from the news angle of it, what have you seen in terms of athlete activism? Because I know you recently did a couple interviews with some athletes about this and about the voting initiatives. The leagues themselves are now trumpeting, hey, we have 90% right. of 100% our players. 100% on a few of the teams, yeah. On a few of the teams, right. So it seems like there's just really this groundswell of activism of some sort to either get involved in voting or to get out in the streets or, or, or do whatever. And in the way you've covered it, the way you've viewed it, what's been that perspective been like? You know, I think what was interesting in talking to a, a few of the players about their um, deciding that they were going to make this the the encouraging people to vote a platform of theirs and a personal goal um, is that I, I think that realizing that the power of their voice and realizing the reach that they have 
and the relatability. I mean, that they're role models in a lot of cases. And, you know, several of the players said that they didn't vote in 2016 and, and that they were ashamed of that, but that it just wasn't something that anybody in their life had really kind of put a lot of value in, that it was just kind of like, oh, my vote isn't going to change anything. It's not going to make a difference. And, and now they're realizing, look, it's not just actually when it's a presidential election. It sometimes is more important what, what's happening on the local level to really change and determine what's happening in your mayoral office or what's happening in your police department and what kind of reform is, is necessary and who's going to be the person that is in charge. Um, and so it was really profound when you looked at the league as a whole and um, how much it was, I think it was in the 20s a percent of, of, of some of the players who had been registered to vote in 2016 versus now and, and how much. So first they were looking at themselves and saying, look, we're kind of to blame, right? Because we haven't been voting. And so not only is it important for us to change, um, but it's important um, maybe more than ever. I mean, that's one side as divided as uh, our country is right now. One thing that both sides agree on is that this is potentially the most consequential election, at least in modern day history, regardless of which side you're on. Um, and, and so I think that the players realizing that, you know what, we have the power to put Black Lives Matter on the court. We have the power to decide the messaging. And I think that, you know, a lot of people aren't gonna listen to what their local uh, state official or city official says, right? You know, um, but they are gonna listen to LeBron James. We have so many people who listen to this podcast who I'm sure some one day wanna be in your shoes and to follow in your footsteps. And I found, the way that you got into journalism to be so fascinating. Um, and if I tell this story wrong, please correct me. Okay. But you were studying abroad and you happened to be in Spain and you were watching the news at that time, didn't understand the language completely. And for whatever reason, there was something at that moment that spoke to you. Now, I, the, the backstory is you were a psych major at UVA, so you weren't a journalism major. But something at that moment spoke to you and said, this is what I want to do. Is that correct? Jim, you are a hardcore journalist. Oh, my gosh. Where did you dig up that story? But that is 100 percent true. Yes. You can keep telling me how it happened. Yes. That, that's right. Um, Yes, uh, uh, was on the, the, the exchange program at, at UVA, the study abroad. And uh, right, I was um, from a high school Spanish exchange program, vi revisiting her um, while I was in college and was watching the news and not particularly understanding. But yeah, did totally have that epiphany, that revelation, that aha moment. Um, that, that this is what I wanted to do. I, as, as you said, I was a psychology major, had initially been thinking that I wanted to become a psychologist because I like talking to people and hearing their stories. At the same time, I thought, well, maybe that'll end up being, you know, like a really downer, like if everybody's only telling you, you know, um, sad stories every day. Um, but I really wanted to do something with people and I'd often been told it was randomly, like I'd be at weddings and I was always the one that ended up giving speeches or the, the toast. And I would have people come up to me twice. This happened where they would say, like, are you in news? Or one time it was a guy that owned some TV stations. And he said, are you in news? If you're not, you should be. And so that was kind of also, I guess, had been in the back of my mind. Um, but 
yeah, ended up in that moment, uh, I, I just decided, and I'm a very, uh, for better or for worse, um, once I make up my mind that I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And so at that point, I, I really then started looking into, okay, what are the next steps? This is my goal. And, and what are the next steps in, in order to achieve that? What, what was it in that newscast <laughs> that just resonated with you? I, you know, I couldn't tell you what it was, except that I just said, that's what I'm going to do. I remember I called my parents. I told them that's what I was going to do. Um, my dad owned a, 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 he still does own a construction company. And he had all along just knew that I was going to take over the construction company. Even I went and got a master's degree in journalism. And I remember mm -hmm. so uh, vividly having the phone conversation with him as I was uh, graduating from NYU, which you know, he had just paid for me to get this master's degree in communications. And he started talking to me about, you know, taking over the, the company and working with him. And I said, wait, dad, no, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be a journalist, you know, like, that's why I just got the degree. And he was like, oh, I thought you got a degree just because your sister also had a master's degree. Like he totally <laughs> thought I was still going into construction. I mean, to this day, his, his heart is kind of broken. It's that you were the role models looked up to and up and to, took inspiration and, and from took inspiration from yeah sure i mean you know at a at a younger age i would say that it was it was barbara walters um and uh ultimately you know kind of over the, over time was was probably uh like oprah and um and diane sawyer um and and you know just some of the the icons i, I tend to be more of a uh, a hard news person that I am like a, you know, a morning TV personality, I think. Um, but yeah, I just really appreciated the, the hard chops The I really like, um, you know, the fact checking and, and just the, the, the going back and forth with a, a good interview and the debate, you know, I think that, um, that, that, and I never even realized until I ended up moderating and you know, my first debate was last year. And, you know, was very nervous going into that. But, you know, probably much to my husband's chagrin. I like debate. I like, you know, a little good <laughs> academic discussion and, and, and back and forth. You know, that's a great segue into this. You did the Cosby interview. And I don't have to tell you that there are people in the black community who felt he was treated unfairly. Mm -hmm. As you say, you're going to have people on both sides. So I wonder as a person of color, who does that interview, and then to have, I'm sure, people in your own community who might look at it um, through a different prism than a journalist would. What was that like, and 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 how do you deal with that? You know, that was a really interesting um, scenario because Bill Cosby was such a beloved character, or or or, or, or I should say, Cliff Huxtable was such a beloved uh, character, but Bill Cosby, sure. the man. Um, was was largely revered as a pioneer in in the black community, um, and he did do a lot initially, you know, for for the black community um, uh, with the Cosby Show and Fat Albert and and beyond. Um, but in the end, I think that it's not just a black or white issue. I mean, there are some people certainly, and it was. Right. I think that I think that a lot of the the difference, the daylight between kind of the, the two schools of thought within the black community was a lot based on age, you know? Mm. So you had a lot of 
older black people, my parents' generation, who were kind of like, well, where were those women then? Why didn't they say it then? And they, you know, um, and and then younger women, um, certainly in the, the Me Too era, who didn't care that his last name was Cosby. It just didn't matter. It, it's like, you know, uh, if you've done these things, then you need to be held accountable. And so it was a really interesting divide. But for me, as as a journalist, just as much as, like I said, I'm I'm not looking to interview a, a Republican or a Democrat any differently, just as much as I'm not looking to interview a Black person or a white person any differently. Um, and and so being with the with Bill Cosby in that moment, first of all, that was a really difficult interview because uh, we were kind of uh, tied to limited to what we could ask um, yeah. about the allegations. Um, and so knowing that and, and knowing that there was actually a different uh, intent um, from uh, the people who were assembled there for that interview. It, it, it was it was difficult and, and 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 a lot of people felt that I was not hard enough on him that I wasn't aggressive enough and you know what um that criticism may be fair but again um, I think that people would have to know in order to just get the interview you do have to sometimes um, uh, agree to what's off limits and what's out of bounds for for the interview subject or you're not going to be able to get to hear from them a- at all. Yeah, I think we I think we've all been there. And you bring up some really good points that no matter how you do an interview, there's going to be subjectiveness in, in what people think about it. Jim and I, being longtime writers, we still are, but I'm more broadcast. Jim's kind of 50-50. We can have a byline, more right? Writing. More, more writing. writing. We we have that byline, and it can be read by people from different ethnicities. You know, I remember when I was doing the Michael Vick dog fighting scandal, and for two weeks. I had the black community of Atlanta telling me, hey, you are a racist. You're going after the black man. And then when they saw me on TV during interviews, all of a sudden the feedback was from white people saying, oh, no wonder you're being so easy on him. Mm. So, I mean, that's just part of the business. No matter what you do, you have to kind of deal with it. One thing I wanted to get with you, Lindsay, is the versatility, right? You, you know, we, we've come up in the business and so many of the people who are a supervisor would ever want to cast us. Right. You need to do this show. You're you're this type of person or you need to kind of follow this train to kind of get to where you want to go. But you've done the big stories in the field. You've sat behind the desk. You've moderated. How important is it, especially in today's media, which is so much more instantaneous than in previous years, to be able to touch all the bases, whether you're in studio, in the field, in a town hall, whatever. I do think versatility is key. And and I always say to especially young and up and coming journalists, it, it's like the more you can do, if you know how to run the teleprompter and set up your own lighting and and, and white balance your own camera and, and put your mic on and, and, and do all of that, I think that the further you're going to go. And so I think that um, to the extent that I've, I've had any success uh, in my career, I do think that it was because they felt that, or management felt that they could throw me in and, and do the light, fun, uplifting story, and at the same time do a, a pretty you know hard-hitting interview. Um, and, and I do think that that range is important. I don't think that it's essential, because at the same time, if you have somebody who their strength is doing this, 
then you have them do just that. And you know that they're going to hit it out of the park every every time. So so not everybody's going to be like the decathlete. Right. But I think that w when you have some, someone who can do 10 sports pretty well, then then you're going to get a, a few more repetitions. And um, and I, I do think that that's uh, it can be an asset. You know, Lindsay, besides being an accomplished reporter, you're also an accomplished author. You've written now three children's books, yes. um, first two bestsellers. And I wonder from your standpoint, which is more gratifying to you, mm. winning Emmys or being a best-selling author? Wow, great question. Well, that's a really good question, it is. Um, and first, I want to say, uh, hopefully the third one will be a best-selling, too. Best <laughs> I'm sure it will. It just hasn't come out just, yet. It'll be out in right. February. Stay this way forever. Got to do a, a shameless plug there. Um, you know, I, I think that in this moment, you know, I, I think that just like with any career, there are seasons. And right now, I might say that um, because I've been in, in journalism for 20 years, it was, I, I, and I kind of know the job, right? But I, at the same time, like I said, I, I, I still consider myself learning and evolving and, and hopefully improving every day. Um, but I, I do like a challenge. And so starting out in um, the children's book world, it was foreign. It was like me and my, you know, um, 40 plus year old self trying to learn a new language. Um, and I, I like that, but I, I do think that that um, has been fun and, and rewarding in a different way. So I don't know that I want to say um, that that one is better, but but I would say that that I do appreciate the challenge of of newness. Um, and and the other thing is that I would say is um, you know I have a six year old son and. And what I have struggled with in his early years and, and even now is, is how much does he get to watch mommy on the news when I'm talking about subjects that are really heavy for especially a young black male in this country um, to have to wear around every day. Um, and with the books, it's something I can share with him and be proud of, like, look at what mommy did. And and quite often in each of the three first books that, that I've done, he, he inspired me to write them. The subject matter was something specifically that right. I he gave me the idea. He's been my muse for. And so I would say that, um, you know, sometimes telling my husband, like, eh, I don't know, don't let him watch the show tonight because we're going to be talking about. And, and quite honestly... A lot of the times if I was just kind of watching the news and he'd be playing with Legos and I, I've told this story before that it was actually the, the reason why I did my second book, One Big Heart, was because um, it was right when the, the men had been arrested at the Starbucks in Philadelphia and, um, and, and, and Robin was interviewing them on Good Morning America and he, he I, again, I just thought that he was distracted and playing with the Legos, but I knew I was going to have to go to Philadelphia and do the story. So I was kind of doing my due diligence and research. And after, you know, all of a sudden done, he said, you know, mommy, why did the, why did the police arrest those black men? Why did they take them? Why did he take, why did the police take those black men to jail? 
was actually what he said. And he likes getting his little apple juice and chocolate milk from Starbucks. And he said, you know, are the police going to arrest uh, me and daddy when we go to Starbucks? Oh, and it was like, wow, like this was, you know, a few years. I mean, he was young and he's only six now. So he may have been like four years old at the time. But he, because, you know, the news was talking about it, that they were black and they were at Starbucks and he knows he's black. And and so um, those kinds of things, I, I then had to decide, like, we, we have to kind of turn the news off in our house. And so um, so what I will say, a long winded way of answering your question is that I do like um, the children's books as a way that I can openly share my work and my writing with my son. It's it's really the same at, at its core. I mean, I'm a storyteller, um, but but one is um, uplifting and joyful and the other is not always. Do you think being a parent makes you a better reporter? Uh, definitely. Yeah, I, I really, really do. Um, especially right now in this climate, um, especially when, um, you know, you have uh, black mothers who are, are losing their sons um, unjustly in, in many cases. And then I've put myself in that position. Um, and I think that it gives a level of empathy that that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. And I would say that early on in my career, I would just see things and and I would just report on them and not necessarily feel it or, or take it home with me or be thinking about it still the next day. And, um, you know, I have to say in, in my, um, again, more than 20 years of being in, in journalism, I've never uh, cried on air and until um, most recently when, you know, the, the so-called racial reckoning was really starting and um, ABC did um, a piece with the, the, the black uh, on air the people here. And, um, you know, I was saying that my, you know, Tamir Rice was 12 and my son is six. And at what age am I supposed to have that conversation with my son? And what am I supposed to say? And it was a really, it was, I shocked myself with how much emotion I felt, you know, just in that moment. And um, I, I think that it does give you a, a different appreciation and empathy uh, for what people are, are going through when you feel that way yourself as, as a parent. Yeah, you know, Jim and I, we both have grown kids. And so the conversation you were having with your six-year-old and then younger son about some things, you know, we've lived it. You know, I've got three sons. They've all been hemmed up for being a passenger in a car, mm. walking down the street, you know, in a black hoodie. I mean, just what are you doing here? That type of so, – so they feel it. So, so I see that. And I'm sure Jim, with some of the discussions that come to women, especially black women, the conversations he's had to have, and that's why we're big on advocacy and learning ourselves. Um about some of the things that, that women go through, especially women of color um, have to go through. So it's, I think, Jim, I think you'd agree with me, being being parents completely changed a lot of perspectives on the way we did our jobs. Oh, being being a girl dad, you know, to, to quote Kobe, um, having two daughters, no sons, there's no question it, is, it has impacted the way that I look at things and the way I go about my job. And, and for instance, even when I was um, president of the Pro Football Writers of America, um, and we choose journalists who are going to be the pool reporters for the Super Bowl. And traditionally, it's always men. 
And I think one time there had been a woman who had done it. And I just said, no. And, and the president appoints who, whoever the pool reporters are. And I said, no, I want two women hmm. to do this. Um, so there's no question that I think being a parent and, and the experiences that you have and those sorts of things impact your daily life and your profession, what you bring to the profession. So absolutely, I agree with you, Steve. Lindsay, as we get ready to, to button this up, we'll have a little fun at the end, but um, to button this up, is there a particular story or an interview or something you've done in your career that you really are just like, that was it? Like that was that was the thing that moved me or that was something that was just so great. I, I know I, I just I just nailed, knocked that one out of the park. <laughs> Well, I think that those, it's really two questions, right? Because there's one that it's like that really moved me or that I just knocked out of the park, right? I'm going to choose to talk about what really moved me. And it is way in the very beginning of my career. And I was working in Flint, Michigan at WJRT. And um, there was a, a hockey, um, like an annual event that happened because there was a young white male. He may have been seven or eight years old. He loved playing ice hockey and he died. And his parents uh, donated his lungs. And this was at a time where you just, they were starting to give you kind of the option of if you wanted to be able to have contact with the person who may have received, you know, your loved one's organs. And um, it was a black woman who ended up receiving um, the, his lungs. And so the, they ended up coming in contact with each other and they asked this woman because she sang and so they asked her to come and sing the national anthem at this annual event at this ice hockey arena where their son played and so this is a story that crossed you know race and age and gender and when you saw this woman belting out the national anthem using the lungs from this mm. boy and mm. it was just powerful. I mean, it was just, you know, it, it was, I mean, I think quite often people overuse and it's like cliche to be like, oh, it gave me chills. I just got chills. But this was a moment where mm. I definitely did get chills and it was just so, and then at the end, uh, when the, the woman finished singing, the mom hugged her and it just was a moment. It was just mm. a real moment that, that has always stuck with me. When I was reading the titles of your children's books, there was always the subtitle where, for instance, the first one, Our Big Heart, and then you say a celebration of being more alike than different. And the second one, The World Awake, a celebration of everyday blessings. Now the third one, Stay This Way Forever. I have not seen a subtitle, no subtitle about a celebration. Is there something coming there? Because it seems in all of your children's books, it is about celebrating something. Well, this really, I think, was evident. I think that with the, the first two books, it wasn't necessarily clear by the title what the book was about. And so the subtitle kind of served as a, this is going to help you to really understand what the book is about. Um, and with the third one, Stay This Way Forever, I think it, it, it's a little more self-explanatory, um, but I'll give you a little bit more. Um, and, and this is, again, inspired by my son, and, and you guys will probably know as, as, as fathers and, and parents in general, that there are certain things that, as your kids are growing up, that you hope that they're going to take 
along with them, that it's not just going to be a phase momentarily in childhood, but it could be just their excitement. It could be just their sense of self and their esteem because, you know, it's kind of like when kids are dancing and they're skipping, they're not worried at a certain stage when they're young enough, like, what are people thinking of me or what, you know? And, um, and, and so there are certain qualities that I do hope that when I'm looking at my son that I say, boy, I hope you stay this way forever. I got you. Jim, Jim what would you take with your daughters to stay this way forever? Oh my goodness. Um, there, it's different for each one, obviously, because they're different individuals. Um, for the younger one, I'll start with her. It's just her love of life. You know, she's just one of those people who I always say she was born into the wrong generation. She was, she would have been a flower child, yeah. you know? So I love that about her. Um, and with my older one, it's, it's, um, she's a tougher nut to crack from the standpoint she's not very um, demonstrative, um, but she's very caring and loving. So um, I would just hope that she never loses that, just mm -hmm. understanding the importance of family. Mm -hmm. And even though, she, and she shows it in her own way, but just knowing that she has that love for her family, that she never loses that. Yeah, with my oldest, I mean, the man he's become is, it's hard for me to even say he stayed this way forever because I see where he is now and it's like, couldn't be more blessed, you know? And then, yeah. you know, my, 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 you know, my middle son is just so charming and he's like never lost it. Right. It's like, he's just like know, his then, dad. Right. I don't know about that. I don't know. And then, yeah. and then my, my, but my youngest one, he used to be competitive. <laughs> he mm. used to be. <laughs> so I wish he could have a little bit more of that. Okay. Lindsay, here's, here's the bit. Okay. okay, and this I'm is inspired ready. by a guest we had here that Jim and I were both taken aback. Okay, so a chicken wing. You've got the drumstick, you've got the flat, and then you've got the little tiny, whatever you want to call it, the pointy thing. How do you break it down when you eat it? What is your favorite part? And you have to take us to the process, one, two, three. Is it fried or does it However have like you buffalo want it sauce on it? Because that would... How, because that matters, right? How messy you're going to get with it. We have not if put it parameters on that. on the coating. You know, you have a little like, oh, man. Well, you know, what is it? The opposite. The, the, there's the flat. And then what do you call the other one? We just call it the pointy thing. Okay. The pointy thing and another, then like the drumstick part. Yeah. There's another. I like the drumstick part. I don't like the pointy thing. I don't. If, you know, normally when you have these like, you know, bowls or whatever, there you can choose right and i own i'm a strictly leg kind of girl i like the drumstick i'm not a wing i don't know i don't want to wings are not meaty you're not going to get the best bang for your buck and it's a lot more work to try to <laughs> to get for a little payoff you know and so i'm just going to go straight for the drumstick lindsay you are a woman after me and jim's heart when we, yes. if you ever encounter an ESPN reporter by the name of Kimberly Martin, please. Okay. All right. Let her know. I shall. <laughs> right. Well, thank, thank you so much. Um, please take your vitamins because we know next Tuesday <laughs> you are going to be at it and probably Wednesday and Thursday. Right, right here. Some there. vitamins. There. <laughs> right. And, and I want to say to you, thank you for pinning the article you did about a mother's anxiety after mm -hmm. childbirth. 
having experienced some of that in, in my own family at one time, um, I think it's so important for people to know that they're not alone in these things. Right. And so for you to share that, I thought was so important. So before we, we leave, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Thank you. And, and that's exactly why I did it. So that people would recognize it almost as like, oh, okay, this is normal. I'll get past this. Well, almost everything you shared, I think it's worth a deeper dive. And, and, and that's why we so appreciate you spending the time that you did. Good luck with everything. Good luck with the new book. Good luck with everything with your son and family as well. And thank you so much again, Lindsay. Thank you guys. Really appreciate it. It's been fun. Steve, you know, I can only hope that our listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm, I'm always fascinated by people who are exceptional in, at what they do. And I consider uh, Lindsay Davis to be one of those people. So um, just talented as a journalist, as an author, um, being so willing to be vulnerable and put out uh, her battle with anxiety after her childbirth. Um, all of those things just make, to me, makes her a very compelling uh, interview. And I'm happy that you and I were able to bring that to our listeners. Yeah, and one thing I really like doing, especially when we have our fellow journalists on, is the human element of it and how we do our craft. I mean, she talked about that Bill Cosby interview. They had to agree to certain terms for access. And Jim, you and I both know when we've had to do that, it sucks because you can't give the people maybe the true honesty of it, but to give the most of the story, sometimes there are parameters which we have to put forth to tell people to say hey look here's why I, I didn't ask that question or go down that that road but then also the human element man when she was talking about her six-year-old son asking questions about what's going on at that starbucks and you know we're, we're all talking about our, our families a little bit even when she's talking about you know her son inspiring her to write those books you know we, we are people who do these jobs and, you know, we, we have true emotion and we, we try to be as objective as possible. But uh, again, we're, we're parents. There's certain things that we bring as parents that, you know, that could be different from those people who are not parents or who have things a, a certain way. Um, but, you know, Jim, one thing again, you know, we started off the interview with her talking about election night. It is important for those of you who have not casted your votes. Um, it is important personally that you go do it. My grandparents, my parents, they had to fight for the right for me to have the opportunity that I have to vote. I passed it along to my kids. I could never sleep at night if I did not, you know, voice that right. And I think it's a disservice to us having this platform if we do not encourage people because your vote does matter. We saw it in every election, whichever way you vote. Locally, nationally, it matters, man. This is one of the rare opportunities we have to to try to make changes if we feel changes are needed, other than screaming from the voice from the, from, the, from the soapbox at the top of our voices. Yeah, you know, Steve, I know the league put out a a release talking about ninety percent of the players are registered to vote. Um, that number should be a hundred percent. But having said that, being registered to vote is not enough for me. Get your ass up get out and vote is too important. So um, you can't complain about what's going on in this country if you're not going to be part of the solution. So get up, get out and vote. It's just too important. And it's not, and again, as you and I have talked about in the past, this is simply not about a presidential election. 
Yep. It's the down ballot that's so important. We have seen the importance, you know, of mayors, of governors, um, of district attorneys, uh, those sorts of things. So get out and vote on these issues that impact your lives. Yeah, even on measures that can affect prices Absolutely. of your pharmaceuticals and 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 housing. Pay attention to that stuff, you know, and and vote with with conviction. And Jim, on the issue of conviction, and this is why I'm also glad that you and I have this forum to highlight women, especially women of mm-hmm. color. We have had Soledad O'Brien, Lindsay Davis, Kimberly Martin on here. This is what we have to do to let the world know that these people are brilliant and they are shakers and movers. And one of the most important people in that realm is one of our colleagues, MJ Acosta. She is a real one. You and I both know her, Jim. It was, it was one of your suggestions as to why she is working at NFL Network. And she is about it. And she had a very impassioned piece that ran on Total Access Wednesday um, about being a black woman in this country at this time. And she is an Afro-Latina. And she is about it. And I think she speaks for all women. And you can find her essay, her visual essay at NFL.com slash inspire change. And we're about inspiring change. We're about being about that change too, Jim. Yeah, you know, MJ knows. uh, MJ, I'll say it to you directly. We love you. We respect you. And keep doing you because nobody does it better. All right. And as we wrap up this podcast, you also want to let you know that next week, Woo-ha! We got we got some bangers coming, Jim. Ladies and gentlemen, we are supposed to have Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes joining us on the Huddle and Flow podcast, but that's next week. Until then, look down your ballot, what? get ready to vote, and Jim, bring us home. What do we always say? Please go to the podcast, subscribe, write a review, tell us what you want to hear, tell us the subjects that we're not talking about, that we should be talking about, so we can give you more of what you're funking for. What you're funking for. That's right. We're here on the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve Weiss for Jim Trotter and our producer, Thomas Warren. We are part of the Howard Mob. We are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers 
to string trimmers and more. Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.